Tonight we come to Matthew chapter 12. And the events here that we find beginning in chapter 12, they're going to be a major turning point in the ministry of Jesus. He's taught the Sermon on the Mount at this point, and all the people were astonished at his teaching. He's performed many miracles, including cleansing a leper. He's healed a centurion servant. He's healed Peter's mother-in-law. He's brought a little girl back to life from the dead and many, many others. If you remember correctly, right before he healed a paralyzed man, he told the man, your sins are forgiven. Wow, that's not what, I, what he expected. But then Jesus said, so that you will know the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins on earth, he said, rise up and walk. And the man did so. Jesus at this point is referred to himself as the Son of Man. He's called himself the Bridegroom. He's had compassion on the people. He's gathered and prepared his apostles to be sent out. He's taught them about faith. He's taught them about the fear of God. He's empowered them to heal the sick, to cast out demons, and to even raise the dead. He's fielded questions from John the Baptist. He's preached the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and he's called the people to repent, and he promised them last week true rest in him. He's been quite busy, wouldn't you think? To this point in his ministry, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, They've been sort of standing by on the sideline, if you will. They've been watching what's going on. Oh, they've asked some questions, but they haven't confronted him directly. They've spoke to the apostles. They've made some comments, but they've steered clear of a direct confrontation with Jesus himself. But that's going to change tonight. From the beginning of Jesus' own ministry, the Jewish leaders were skeptical of him. And that skepticism rapidly escalated into criticism. It'll turn into open hostility and direct opposition, which will eventually land him on the cross. As Jesus begins to attack their man-made religious system, and he's going to defy their man-made religious laws, the leaders of that system, they're going to begin to question him, and they're going to begin to attack him as well. You see, within themselves... They had already accused them of blasphemy. They'd already said that. They have accused him of fellowshipping with tax collectors and sinners, those kinds of people. It won't be long before they accuse him of being demon-possessed. You see, it's, they're, they're going to point all the guns, so to speak, at Jesus. They want to take him down, and they want to ruin his ministry. But to this point in his ministry, all of these accusations, they're made amongst themselves. They haven't had that direct contact with him. They've talked to the disciples and they've spoken generally. But tonight, in chapter 12, they're going to come to Jesus directly. Let's see how things turn out for him. Chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Let me first point out to you, before we, go any, before we go any further, the disciples, they were hungry. You know what that means? They didn't have any food with them. They were walking, looking for food. They happened to be walking through a grain field. They take the grain, and they could take... I heard Pastor Chuck teach this one time, and he said that he was over in Israel, and they went through a grain field. He took the grain, and he, and he did it in his hands like this, and all the, the chaff went away, and he could actually eat the grain. I've tried that twice, and both times it wasn't ripe or it wasn't ready or whatever, because all I got was just green gook, you know, and I wasn't about to eat it. But what they were doing is they were hungry. There was, there was a need for them to put food in their bodies. 
And I point that out because there's a small group of ministers today who would say that if Jesus was alive today, he'd be flying around the world on a private jet, enjoying the finer things of life. Well, he was alive back then, and what do we see? He's hungry, and he has no food with him. There's nothing with him. He's dependent upon what's going to come his way. He didn't enjoy the things of the world back then, and he wouldn't do it today either. His focus was on pleasing the Father in whatever that looked like. Don't buy into that. Back then, even today, the Sabbath is a very important day in the Jewish system. When they thought that Jesus had violated the Sabbath, when he broke their Sabbath laws, or he, they thought he, they broke, he broke the Sabbath laws, he struck a nerve with them. He struck a chord in a very big way. The Hebrew word for Sabbath, it's Shabbat. Shabbat. Even today, if you go to Israel on Saturday, because that's the Hebrew Sabbath, you will greet somebody with Shabbat Shalom. It means peaceful Sabbath or Sabbath peace. That's what it means, Sabbath peace, Shabbat. The basic meaning of Shabbat is to cease or to rest or inactivity. It's to take a break, if you will. If you remember back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, after God created the earth, it tells us that God blessed the seventh day and he sanctified it. He set it apart because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. He took the day off. He set it apart. He sanctified it. Even in the fourth commandment in Exodus chapter 20, verse 9, it says, Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. Although we know the Sabbath is part of what we would call the Old Covenant, the Old Covenant is still in effect at the time Jesus is walking on the earth. He came to fulfill the law, and, and we know that, so he still has to follow all the rules and all the laws of the Old Covenant. Otherwise, if he fails to do that, now he only has to follow the true biblical sense of the, of the law, not the man-made version of the law. If he had failed to do that, he would be a sin for violating the law, and he would not have been a perfect sacrifice for our sins. So, it's part of the Old Covenant. It's still in effect at Christ. And over the years, what has happened is the rabbis, well, they had, uh, they had added to some things. They had tried to interpret the laws and give, give the people some applications. So they, in, they had interpreted it, and they had reinterpreted it, and they wanted to make sure the people knew how to live these laws. And they wrote a book about it. It's called the Talmud. It's a Jewish book of tradition, and it gave specific instructions in Jewish life, and specifically one of the things it talked about was on the Sabbath. One of the rules on the Sabbath was that you couldn't travel more than 3,000 feet from your home. And even today in Israel, if, you let, or if you're around an Orthodox Jewish community, they will have markers out at 3,000 feet so that you don't go too far on the Sabbath day because once you walk too far, it would constitute work. Under Sabbath regulations, a Jew could not carry anything, and any, they called a load, they couldn't carry anything that weighed more than a dried fig. So you could figure out what a dried fig looks like, and that's how much burden you were allowed to carry on the Sabbath day. Anything other than that was considered work, and you would have violated your Sabbath day. But if the object only weighed half of a dried fig, then you could carry it twice. That's how specific they got. That's how kind of weird they got about it. You could eat nothing larger than an olive, and if you tasted an olive and you didn't like it and you spit half of it out, well, that counted. You couldn't then replace it with a full olive. You know, half of it was wasted. That, that counted. It, if that was rotten and you spit it out, it was considered to have been eaten as far as the allowance was considered. So you only got nothing beside, nothing larger than an olive. Baths, showers could not be taken 
because they feared that if you got into the bathtub and a little bit of water fell out on the ground, well, then that would be like cleaning your floor, and that's working on the Sabbath day. You go, oh, that's ridiculous. Chairs could not be moved. You couldn't move a chair because if you drug a chair, one of the legs might create a small furrow in the ground. And that would be considered work because furrows were what you dug to plant with. And because you created a small furrow by a chair, you were con considered in violation of the Sabbath day. If you were a woman, and I don't know why it's just women, but if you were a woman, you could not look in the mirror. And their logic was, you might see a gray hair and pull it out. <laughs> Apparently guys are allowed, I don't know. I even read that false... False teeth could not be worn on the Sabbath day because they exceeded the weight limit for burdens that could be carried. Well, what if you become sick on the Sabbath day? Who's going to help you? Who's going to treat you? If you became ill on the Sabbath day, only enough treatment could be given to you or whoever was sick to keep you alive. Only enough to keep you alive, to sustain life. Treatment to improve your health, well, that was just declared to be work. And therefore, it was forbidden on the Sabbath day. Craziness. Among other things forbidden on Sabbath activities were sowing, plowing, reaping, grinding, baking, threshing, binding sheaves, winnowing, sifting, dying, not like falling over dead, like dying clothes or dying something, shearing, spinning, kneading, separating or weaving two threads, tying or untying a knot, and sewing two stitches. You could sew one, I guess, but you couldn't sew two. Even today in Israel, if you're an Orthodox Jew or if you're a Jew who wants to keep the Sabbath, you're forbidden to turn on a light switch because the light switch will kindle a fire. It'll cause electricity to burn. You're forbidden to push a button. I've talked about it, how you, get on the, you go to the elevator on Shabbat, on the Sabbath. It'll stop at every floor so you don't have to touch the button and violate the Sabbath day. I don't know how you could get any rest with all this stuff to worry about. I mean, think about it. I'd be worried about violating it all the time. How could I get any rest? But do you get the point of how serious they took it? How, how it wasn't a joke to them. Even, even a handful of grain pulled from a stalk that somebody hungry was going to eat, is, they're looking at it as a violation of the Sabbath day. And I think it's important to point out that probably even being in the grain fields on the Sabbath day was a violation. Now remember, it violated their tradition. It didn't violate God's law. It violated their tradition. It was a violation of their interpretation of the law. Well, some people might say, well, wait a minute, Rob. Jesus and his disciples, they're walking through a grain field, and, and they're taking grain, and they're rubbing it in their hands, and they're eating it. Let, let's just get past the Sabbath thing. Aren't they stealing? Aren't they taking something that doesn't technically belong to them? The answer to that question is no, they're not. Well, how do you rationalize that? Well, the Mosaic law allowed for it. It's written in the law. It took into account that when people traveled, you might run out of food for various reasons. Let me read it to you. In Deuteronomy chapter three, or chapter 23, verse 24 and 25, it says this. When you come into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes at your pleasure, but you shall not put any in your container. And verse 25 says, when you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not use a sickle or your neighbor's, on your neighbor's standing grain. So they weren't stealing. It was something the law allowed for. They realized, hey, people are going to be hungry. And if you've got a field full of grain, what's a few handfuls going to hurt? And it's okay. They're not allowed to take it with them. 
They can only take what they can consume, but it's okay for them to have something to eat if they're hungry. The Mosaic law says they can pluck off some grain, but the problem in this situation wasn't that they were taking the grain. They were doing it on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees, well, they had no problem pointing that out to Jesus, did they? There in verse 2, they said, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. I wonder what they were doing in the field. I mean, how did they see it? That's the police officer in me. Well, how did you, well, you were at this point, how did you see it from there? You know, what are you doing out in the field? You must be violating the Sabbath too if you're out there witnessing it. You're doing it too. What were you doing there? And I love the Lord. Instead of using the scripture to uh, create and to build their traditions, what they did, well, the Lord didn't do it. Instead, Instead of taking the scriptures and looking at them and saying, how do we apply this to our life? Lord, how would you apply it to us, our life? They took their traditions and they manipulated the scriptures to fit around them. They wanted the scriptures to support what they believed. They, they wanted the scriptures to validate the rules they established. The traditions of men, in their mind, their tradition superseded the scriptures. And that was the problem. They worshipped their religion, their tradition, and not the God of their religion. Instead of, they weren't worshipping the Lord, they were worshipping their religion. In his defense, Jesus, what he does, he points them right back to Scripture again. Look what he says in verse 3. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. When Jesus said, have you not read what David did? Have you not read what David did? He was being sarcastic. There's no other way to take that. It was full-on sarcasm. Of course they knew what David did. Of course they knew what David wrote. Of course they knew that scripture. We're Pharisees. We, we, know, the, we know, and I'm going to say the Bible, but I refer to the Old Testament scriptures. We know those better than anybody. Of course we had that information. We're experts in the scriptures. It would be like a student saying to his math teacher, right as she's correcting him, hey teacher, haven't you read the book? Of course I've read the book. I'm the teacher, you're the student. What if the student's right? That's the situation that's unfolding here. In answering their complaint, Jesus points to two examples in the Old Testament. He points to David eating the showbread, and he, says to the, he points to, what about the priests who work all day long on the Sabbath day in the temple? David. He was the hero of the Jews. He was their hero. They loved him. He, he was loved. He was honored, even above some of the prophets. They killed the prophets, but David, they, they, still, they still look up to King David. They still do. When David and his men were on the run from King Saul, David came to the tabernacle. It was set up there in Nob, and he asked the priest. He said, hey, I need some food. We're hungry. I need some food. And the priest said, there is no common bread here. We have no common bread here. All we have is the show bread in the tabernacle, the showbread. But he says, go ahead and, 
since you're so weak and you're hungry, and I'm going to summarize, since, go ahead and eat it, but just make sure the men haven't been with any women. Just, just go ahead. I, I need to fill, go ahead and fill yourselves up. And the showbread were 12 loaves of bread baked fresh every week, and they represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And he said, you can have them. You need to eat. David took the bread, he ate it, and he gave it to his men. You see, the true needs of men outweigh the rules of religion. There was a man in need, and it outweighed the rules of religion. The Pharisees had lost sight of the people and their needs, and all they were focusing on is this religious system that they had taken from God and set it up to be their own thing and interpreted it their own way. What was supposed to be beautiful was being uh, polluted by their ideas and their ways. So he, te- he takes it, he eats it, and the, the, the priest gives it to him. One commentator explained it this way. He said, the Lord was willing for a ceremonial regulation to be violated when doing so was necessary to meet the needs of his beloved people. Well, are we going to let, let guys starve to death when there's bread? There? No, you can't have that bread. That's special bread. That's religious bread. That's spiritual bread. You can't eat that. If God makes allowances for his own law to be broken under certain circumstances for the welfare of his people, Jesus said he surely permits purposeless and foolish man-made traditions to be broken for that same reason. You see, the traditions that Jesus was being accused of, they were man-made traditions. Yes, the Sabbath came from God, but the way that it was being applied to the people and interpreted by the priest, that wasn't from God. That was man-made. The second scriptural example that Jesus gave him there is found in verse 5. He says, or haven't you read in the law? Again, sarcasm. Haven't you not read in the law? Of course we've read the law. That on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath. And they're blameless. The the priests were not only allowed, but they they were required to work on the Sabbath day. The pastor works on Sunday. The priest worked on Saturday. In fact, if you were a priest back then, your work doubled on Saturday on the Sabbath because you had to make twice as many sacrifices. So it wasn't less work, it was more work. And Jesus says, and they are blameless. Meaning it's not about the work. It's about the God of the work. I like this. Because when he throws this out to them, I get the picture of a little kid talking to his dad. And the little kid wants to go to his friend's house or her friend's house and wants to go over there and play. And dad, can I go over to Jimmy's house? And dad says, no, no, you can't go to Jimmy's house. Well, why not? Because Jimmy Jimmy lives 3,010 feet away. And you can't cross that 3,000 foot mark. And that, why can't I cross the 3,000 foot mark, dad? Because, well, that would be considered work or labor on the Sabbath day and we can't violate the Sabbath. Then he looks and he sits back and he goes, aren't the priests working on the Sabbath day? Aren't they, aren't they laboring on the Sabbath day? How come they can labor on the Sabbath day, but I can't go see my friend Jimmy? That's one of those dad things. It's just the way it is, son. You're going to have to get over it. <laughs> There's no answer for that, but you can just see that kind of question. How come it's okay for him and not for me? Jesus is flat out embarrassing him with these comments. With these two places that he points them into Scripture, he's not only embarrassing them, he's making them angry as he's pointing out what? They're inconsistencies with Scripture. You're saying, I can't violate the law, but David violated the law. The priests violate the law every Sunday. Why are you so worried about me? You see what I'm saying? He's pointing back to them. But as he's correcting them, he's also teaching them. He's also teaching them. Yes, he's correcting. There's a correction taking place, and that happens in your life sometimes too. 
there'll be a correction that takes place, and you can respond to that correction in a number of ways. But with that correction often comes a lesson. And there's a lesson that's being taught to them. The sa- what, what's the lesson that's being taught to them? The Sabbath is not about what you eat or about your labor. It's about your relationship with the Lord. It's about you honoring the Lord. The Sabbath was given for God's glory and man's relationship with God. That's the lesson that's being taught there. Listen to how one commentator explained it so well. He said, Because the Lord of the Sabbath had come, the shadow of his Sabbath rest was no longer needed or valid. The New Testament does not require Sabbath observance, but rather allows freedom as to whether or not any day is honored above others. The only requirement is that whatever position is taken... It is taken for the purpose of glorifying the Lord. And no believer has the right to impose his views in this regard on anyone else. You see, when it came to the New Testament, we're not required to take a Sabbath day based on the the New Testament. We're not required to do that anymore. Interestingly enough, Bible scholars have done many, many studies on the value of taking a Sabbath day. And there is tremendous value on taking a Sabbath day each week. What does it do for you if you decide, hey, I'm going to take a Sabbath day? It provides rest. It provides fellowship with church family. It provides family bonding. Matter of fact, you should watch a Sabbath celebration in Israel. It's amazing when you have, when, because it, Sabbath starts at 6 o'clock on sundown one night and goes till 6 o'clock the next night. When you get around those people celebrating a Sabbath day, it's like a big party. It's like, I want to go celebrate with them. I just don't know what they're saying. But it's like a big party happening. It's, it's, it's a family gathering. It's a family thing. It gives you a chance to spend a little time focusing on the things of the Lord. If you don't take one, I highly recommend it. Sunday is a great day for a Sabbath. You're not required to. You're not doing anything wrong necessarily by not taking one. But you might be ripping yourself off of the benefits that come from taking one. So I would encourage you to consider it. And most importantly, I would say, hey, seek the Lord. Lord, would you have me take a Sabbath? Are you worn out? Are you stressed out? Are you at a place where you go, I just, I I don't know if I can keep going. I would ask the question, are you taking a Sabbath? Are you consistently taking a day off? For my family, it's usually Monday. But I got to be honest, as a pastor, it's hard for me to take a Sabbath. I don't get them as often as I would like. I wish I could take Sunday as a family day and come to church and sit and listen to a message and go out to lunch and go home and have a barbecue and hang out with my family. It doesn't work that way at my house because I'm like the priest. I've got to work on Sundays. I would encourage you that if you don't, you consider taking it. But then Jesus says something that would enrage them. Look there at verse 6. He says, Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. In the mind of a Pharisee, nothing except God himself was greater than the temple. This magnificent structure that was still under construction, mind you, at the time of Christ, there's nothing that was greater than that. It was an amazing thing, other than God himself. One greater than the temple, they would say? Are you kidding me? There's nothing greater than Have you seen what the temple looks like? There's nothing greater. Well, maybe God himself is greater than the temple. So when Jesus says this, by making this statement to them, They understood that he's making himself God. He's making himself equal with God. And just in case that wasn't clear enough what he was saying, he removed all doubts when he started verse 7. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, 
you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, Jesus quotes to them from the scriptures. These are the scriptures that they know so well. They're aware of them. He's essentially telling them, hey guys, you don't understand the scriptures. You don't know what they mean. You're not getting a good grasp on it. When Jesus refers to sacrifice, he's referring to their entire sacrificial system. You don't understand what I'm trying to do here. They, they had lifted their man-made traditions over the principles of mercy and sacrifice. It, they, they had forgotten about mercy and it was all about their system. In doing so, they, he felt that you, you guys have neglected mercy altogether. Or some translations translate it as compassion. You've neglected compassion. You've neglected mercy altogether. You're so worried about your religious system and your, and I'm going to call it a church, but I know it wasn't a church, your synagogue, that you forgot all about the people. You forgot about God and you're just trying to institute this system that you want everyone to live under. And you forgot all about something very, very important. It's something that's very, very important to the Lord and it's called mercy and compassion. You're not paying attention to that. Essentially, what they had become, the religious police. The religious police, they go around pointing out everybody's faults. Hey, Jesus, look at your disciples. Why are they eating grain in the grain fields? They're self-appointed sin sniffers. That's what they do. They go around sniffing out the sin in everybody else's life. Let me tell you how you're doing it wrong. Let me tell you what the problem is in your life. Let me tell you what I see in your life. Never wanting to look at their own life. And if they did look at their own life, it was through clouded glasses because they thought, well, I'm doing everything just fine. I'm doing everything just right. They're self-appointed sin sniffers, and they wanted you to know what you were doing wrong. You know anybody like that? Sadly, we probably do. Listen very carefully. This is important. If somebody comes into this church, and maybe they don't have it all together. Maybe they don't know to take their hat off during prayer. Maybe they're not dressed modestly enough. Maybe, they're, they're, maybe they use some language that normally wouldn't be heard in church maybe they're they don't they're not acting like we think that a christian should act don't take it upon yourself to go straighten them out don't do that they might be brand they might not even be a believer yet they might just be coming to see what this is all about don't go straighten them out let the lord convict them let them be welcome here as long as they want to let them come and listen to god's word being taught this might be the only time or that might be the only time they ever step foot in a church and if you decide or I decide, I'm going to go straighten them out, it might run them out the door, and that might be it. I've done that once. Not me. They might, their response would be, I've done that once. I'm not going back to that place or any place else. We've got to be careful that we don't do that. Let the Lord convict. Do you know how many drug users come to church high for the first time? A lot more than you think. You know how many people that have a problem with alcohol come to church drunk for the first however long? But yet they keep coming sometimes. Because God's doing something. What if we met him at the door and said, I'm sorry, you're not allowed here. And we do an eye test, a, a DUI test at the door. Make sure, that every, oh, you're not sober, you can't come. No, if they want to come hear God's word that way, let them come. Let God, maybe God will do something miraculous. Maybe it'll finally sink into them and they'll realize the freedom they have. Let them come sit and listen to the word be taught. There are, I believe, in my opinion, there are churches with empty chairs where the pastor's teaching the word of God. But the people, the elder board, the deacon board, or whatever, whoever you want to give it a, a title to, they're keeping people away. 
because of they stand in judgment of everybody that comes through the door. They just they, they want to tell them how they're not living right. They want to they want to point out all the problems and go clean yourself up and then come back to church. It's not what Jesus wanted. He said, "Come to church and let me do the work in you. Let me do that work for you. Come sit and listen to the word being taught." I thank the Lord that our church is not like that. I thank the Lord that people are welcome here in any way they want to come. I, I thank the Lord that you guys aren't that way. And I know you're not because I've heard that about the comments about our church. I, I'm thankful that we have the kind of church where people are welcome to come in however they, however they are. We don't ever want to be a bunch of Pharisees who neglect mercy, compassion. You've heard me say it before. I never want to get to heaven and have the Lord say, you know, you were a little too judgmental. I would have rather you've been a little more merciful. I'd rather have him say, you know, Rob, you were a little too merciful. I really wish you were a little more judgmental, if that's possible. Because I think in our humanness, we are, we're, it's easy to be judgmental. But to extend mercy, that's a whole other thing. You see, if they had known what the Lord meant when he said, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, they would have never been pointing their finger at Jesus and the disciples for breaking the Sabbath. But even if he was, let's just pretend for a moment, and he wasn't, but let's pretend for a moment that he was breaking the Sabbath. Look at verse 8. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He's already told them the Sabbath is not about what you eat, it's not about your labor, but even if it was, he's saying, it's my Sabbath. I'm the one that established it. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the one that created it. I'm the one over the Sabbath. The Sabbath is not over me. You see, even if he was, and he's not, he's telling them, listen, you, don't need, you guys don't get it. You're worried about the Sabbath. I'm over top of the Sabbath that you're trying to keep. In other words, I'm the one who created it. It's not over top of me. Since Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, he doesn't even wait for a response. He leaves, and I love it, he goes into their synagogue. He goes to the synagogue where he will demonstrate in power his position as Lord over the Sabbath. Look at verse 9. I love this. Now when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue. Can you imagine? Can you just, just pause for a moment? Can you imagine? All, I just picture this group of Pharisees dressed a certain way, all kind of uptight. He has this conversation with him. He shares. He walks away, and now they're all following him. Where's he going? And he goes into their synagogue. What's he doing in there? How come he's going in there? And he goes into the synagogue. And before... And behold, verse 10, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they asked him, saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath that they might accuse him? The Pharisees thought they had a perfect trap. In the synagogue is a man with a withered hand. Now, remind you, they were completely unaffected by his reminder that God desires mercy and not sacrifice. They, that, that, that went right over the top of their head. They weren't even, that, that shows they're not even interested in the truth or interested in hearing what God says. It's just what I say. Because what he quoted to them was the scriptures. And they said to Jesus, very clear question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now their only purpose in asking this question or even listening to an answer was so they could accuse him of violating the Sabbath. Obviously, their previous attempts to confront Jesus had not gone so well for them. And it's interesting that even by asking the question, they're recognizing his power to heal. By the fact that they're asking it. 
But what, they're what are they trying to really do? They're trying to regulate it. Okay, we, we recognize that, you know, we've heard all the stories about you healing Jesus, and we know that you can heal, but you can't do it on this day. Well, what if somebody really needs healed? Not today. You've got to wait till tomorrow. But what if, it, no, what, but what, why wouldn't I change a life today that I can, what? no, no, not today. It's the Sabbath day. We've got we to honor God on the Sabbath day. Well, how is, not, how is not healing somebody honoring God when I've got the power to heal? You see, they believe that if Jesus truly was God, as he claimed, that he would respect their tradition and wait until the next day to heal the man. That's what they thought. Well, if you really are God, then you're going to respect my man-made tradition. Let me tell you something. God is not a respecter of people. He doesn't have to respect our, our, our traditions. What he respects and what he holds high is his word. It's us that needs to respect him and his word and come underneath of his word, not tell him how he should do things. And that's essentially what they're doing. They're trying to trap him. Listen how he answers their question. But remember, I talked about it earlier. According to Jewish law, the only, re only way that you were allowed to give medical help on the Sabbath day was if you were going to sustain life or keep somebody from dying. And that you couldn't, you couldn't make them feel better. You could just keep them from dying. And this man, obviously, if he had a withered hand, he didn't have a life-threatening issue. It wasn't like he, you know, had a, fell down and broke his head open or something like that. It was, he, it's something that's been around for a while. Look at verse 11. And he said to them, What man is there among you who has one sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So Jesus looks at him. I can just picture him. They, they think they've got him trapped. They followed him into the synagogue. They're there. The man with the withered hand's there. He's being set up. Perhaps it was a planned thing from the start or however it was. We don't know. But he gets there. They're gathered around. They ask him the question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He looks at them. They're on the Sabbath day. And he says, hey, listen, guys. If one of your little lambs wanders off and falls into a hole, are you going to pull him out? Or are you going to leave him down in the hole until the next day? Because they weigh more than a withered fig. Are you, what are you going to do with them? Are you going to leave them? The obvious answer is what? They're going to take the sheep out. They're not going to leave them in the hole. Why? Why would they do that? Because sheep in that day were part of what defined their wealth. It was their pocketbook. If you dropped a $100 bill on the ground on the Sabbath day, would you bend over and pick it up? You betcha. I'm not going to go, no, it weighs way more than half a fig. No, I'm going to pick up my 100 bucks that I dropped. And you would do the same thing. That day, in that day, the sheep were seen as wealth. And it also, some commentators suggest, and, and I didn't find a, 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 an example of this, but it, it's, it's been suggested that there was actually a clause in the Sabbath day that when it came to lifting your sheep out of a hole, that was okay. They made that exception. In other words, there's an economic justification for not keeping the Sabbath. You can save a sheep, but there's no justification for mercy in healing on the sabbath do you see their logic what was it really about their pocketbooks jesus asked the question because their, their obvious answer if your sheep falls into a hole are you going to get them out the obviously answer is yeah and then he asked the question aren't people more valuable than sheep huh i mean you could just what do you mean can you can you rephrase the question can you say it in a different way 
Now, if your sheep falls into a hole, your lamb falls into a hole, you take it out, right? Yeah, and that's allowed, yes. So aren't people more valuable than sheep? Uh, I'm not sure. Mark's gospel tells us that as Jesus said this, he also tells them, he also asked the question, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? And it says they kept silent. In other words, they didn't answer the question. But it seems so obvious. Why? Because they're stumped again. Man, he got us again. And he says to them, there is an answer to your question. Yes, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Now, let me demonstrate it to you. There in verse 13, he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. Mark tells us that when Jesus said this, he was angered. He was angered. And he also says that he was grieved by the hardness of their heart. Their heart was so hard, they couldn't see what God was doing right in front of them. I don't know about you, but I think that if there was a person in our church that had a withered hand or whatever this looked like, and somebody healed them, I'd be pretty, that'd be pretty cool. And if there was someone going around healing everybody, that'd be something pretty amazing to see. I'm not talking about TV preachers that only get like one out of ten. I'm talking about somebody really walking around. That'd be, that'd be pretty amazing. These people had gotten so focused on their religious system that they had been set up over years and years and years that they are missing the Son of Man in their very presence. As Christians, today, may we never get so focused on applying the Scriptures to somebody else's life that we never get to apply them to our own. You see, I know what it's like to sit out and listen to a Bible study. Sometimes you start to think, I wish so-and-so could hear that. I really wish my husband could hear. I wish my wife was listening. Are you listening, honey? Are you listening? And, and the elbow starts flying. You go, I really wish. And may I challenge you that whenever that happens, whenever you think, oh, I wish so-and-so, and, and it could be a good lesson to pass on. But before you pass it on, would you check your own heart? And make sure you're not going, well, I just want to pass it on so I don't have to make a decision on it. You see, that's what he's talking about. As Christians, we don't ever want to get so focused like they were on, on our system, on our religious system, that we fail to miss what's happening before us. Look how they responded there in verse 14, and we'll close with this verse. Then the Pharisees went out, and they plotted against him how they might destroy him. This is the religious leaders. This is the, this is the leaders in response to the Son of Man in response to his display of wisdom, because he outwitted them on every time, in response to his display of power, in response to his, even his display of compassion on the man with the withered hand, what do they say? We want him out of here. We want him wiped out. They became more aggressive at stopping Jesus rather than looking inward at their own heart and saying, wow, maybe we're missing something here. Maybe there's something, you know, he said about mercy. Maybe, maybe, you know, we really don't apply much mercy in any, any of these cases. Maybe we should take a look at how we're doing things. But they don't. Why was there so much hatred? Why was there so much envy there for them? Why were they seeking to, why did they want them destroyed? The simple truth be told, their traditions of their religion did not line up with the scriptures and Jesus was calling them out on it. That's really what it was. 
They're, what they want, the way that they thought life should go didn't line up with what the scripture says and Jesus is calling them out on it and he's even demonstrating who he is with power and miracles. But they don't want to hear it. Even today, these types of people, these Pharisees, they can be found all over Christian churches. All over. Sin sniffers. They want to point out everybody else's problems. Let me, show, let me give you a piece of, let me straighten you out on this. Let me tell you what your problem is. Let me tell you what's wrong. It, it, it can happen sometimes. And some people are more aggressive than others. We don't need police officers in the church. We need paramedics. People that are going to help people and, and tend to their wounds and, and build them back up and try to encourage them. Not, not people that are going to put them in jail and lock them up. That's the difference. These people can be found all over Christian churches. There Maybe some of you guys, I don't know. If you're one of them, Rob, maybe that's me. I'm kind of like that. What do I do? You repent, and you go learn what it means when he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And you begin showing mercy where you would never show mercy before. I can almost guarantee you there's going to be nobody that gets to heaven, and Jesus says, well, you were just way too merciful on that earth. I just don't see it happening. I think that you can't get there. And if you know one, Rob, I'm not one, but I know somebody like that. And, and, And they're in your mind. What do I do? You pray for them. You pray for them. You don't go straighten them out because then you become just like them. You begin to pray for them. And you ask the Lord to correct them. And you ask the Lord to lead you in speaking to them. Because while we accept anybody the way they are, there's certainly a standard where someone who's proclaiming to be a Christian, and there's a time where you might have to go to someone and say, hey, you're saying you're a Christian, but you're not living like one. You're saying that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, but I don't, I, you, you can't. you got to stop coming to church high. You can't be both. There's a time for that, but that, kind, that time comes through prayer as the Lord leads you at that time. You better, when, when it comes time to, to do that, if it's a friend of yours, you better be willing to sever their friendship on that because it might just be the last thing, time you see them. They might become so offended, they might walk away, and that might be it, and you have to be okay with that. I'm telling you, this is it. This is what the Lord has laid on my heart. I've prayed about, you've heard me say it before, 30 days, I think, is a minimum. Pray for 30 days before you confront somebody like that. After 30 days, you do what you have to do if, if the Lord's still putting it on your heart. I can't tell you how many times in my life I've had someone that I feel like I need to confront on something as the pastor of a church where I say there's something going on, I need to do something about it, I'll commit it to prayer for 30 days, and by the time that 30 days is over, it's taken care of. The problem's already solved. It's already been handled. I don't have to worry about it anymore. And you know, that's so much better when he does it than when I do it. It always ends bad when I do it. Not always, but you know, you know how it goes. If you know somebody like that, pray for them. If you're like that, repent and learn what it means that I desire mercy and not sacrifice. 